On today's broadcast, I'm going to explain how our eschatology, our end-time views, can affect our attitude today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Brown. So delighted to be with you. Thanks for spending this time together with me, whether you're listening live on radio or later on a podcast or another online form, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, just a little wave to our viewers there. Great to have you with us today on the line of fire. I won't be taking calls, but we're going to be getting into the word and having some in-depth discussion about a really important subject. The end times is important enough in and of itself. What happens at the end of the age? What happens with the return of Jesus? What happens to the human race? What happens to the church? What happens to Israel? What happens to the nations? These are big questions. But an even bigger question is how does this affect the way I live today? How does this affect my attitude, my walk with God, my effective ministry to those around me today? That's what we want to focus on. And regardless of your own particular end time view, and we'll look at a number of different ones today, but regardless of that, I believe you'll find today's broadcast very, very helpful. Now, many of you know that March 19th is when the new book, I'm holding an advanced copy in my hands, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, co-authored with my esteemed colleague, Professor Craig Keener. Our book will be out on March 19th. We got our advanced copies on the same day, and we both posted them on our Facebook pages saying, hey, we got our advanced copies. And Craig, being a funny guy, he said, well, here's a pre-copy, but it's about a post. So well, can I post it about a post-tribulation subject? Anyway, as soon as we posted it, that same day, it jumped on Amazon to the number one new release in Christian prophecy. I, I just wanted to see who else had books coming out. You know, Dr. David Jeremiah had a book coming out and some others that were obviously serious heavy hitters. And I thought, well, there's obviously an interest. The moment we posted this, there's an interest, but our book is not a divisive book. We have clear views. We have strong views. We do not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And we explain why in the book, but with esteem and honor for our colleagues who differ with us. So regardless of your position today, I believe you will find today's broadcast very helpful as well as the book very helpful. Of course, you can pre-order it now, but it's due out on March 19th. Now, before I I give you a breakdown of major end time views and what I see as strengths and weaknesses within each one, regardless of your scriptural view, I want to look at each one and see strengths and weaknesses. I want to give you an example of how a misreading of scripture or a misapplication of scripture can affect our mindset and our ministry today. Uh, Let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This was one of the first verses that I heard quoted regarding the end times. As a new believer, I heard this quoted, 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days, hard times will come. Famously in the King James, perilous times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, 
disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, hard-hearted, unforgiving, backbiting, without self-control, brutal, hating what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to an outward form of godliness but denying its power. And I'm going to stop right there in the middle of that verse. I'm not going to read the end of verse 5 for a reason. I'm going to come back to it, but I'm not going to read it right now for a reason. So how was that verse quoted? Well, I heard it quoted as a proof that we were in the end times. And look at this description that Paul gives of the end times. So number one, look at how accurate the Bible is in describing the day in which we live. That was first thing. Then the second thing was the understanding, the tacit understanding that things will only get worse. Now, I didn't hear that preached necessarily in immediate conjunction with this verse. In other words, don't try to do anything to bring about change in the society because it's only going to get worse. But I've heard that on and off and with regularity for the last 47 years or the better part of it. Things are only going to get worse. Look at how bad things are. They're only going to get worse. So, so just picture, picture this. Go to the doctor, all right? And the, the doctor tells you, yeah, you've got this serious condition. It's, it's very concerning. And in your mind, you've been told, once the doctor has bad news for you, it's all downhill from there. There's nothing you can do to change it. Well, how's it going to affect your health? Eh, not going to bother with this medication. Eh, not going to bother with lifestyle change. Eh, not going to bother with exercise, therapy, any of it. Eh, surgery. Eh, it's only going to get worse. Now, if that is our attitude, based on this verse, look, perilous time is going to come. It's going to be wicked and terrible. Why try to bring about moral reform? Why try to turn the tide with abortion in America? Why try to turn the tide with sexuality in America? Why, why try to turn the tide with, with social injustice in America or any other kind? Why, why bother? Why combat human trafficking? <laughs> Things will only get worse. That's reality. Now, I, I use that as an example to say that's how we can read scripture, have an end time reflection based on it, and then come to wrong conclusions that affect our mindset. So what are some of the problems with that interpretation? Let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And let's notice that Paul says to Timothy, take note of this. Take careful note of this. Understand this. Mark, mark my words, Timothy. So the first question is, why is Timothy being warned about something that's not going to be relevant for 2,000 years. Now, remember I told you I, I didn't read the rest of verse 5. Let me, let me finish it. Speaking of these same worldly, sensual people holding to an outward form of godliness, but denying its power, avoid these people. Timothy, avoid people like this. <clears throat> okay, so you get the point. Paul is talking to Timothy about something practical in his own day, something relevant to Timothy in his own day. In fact, that description that Paul gives worked well in Timothy's day, worked well in Moses' day, worked well in the 18th century, in the 15th century, worked well a thousand years ago. In fact, you could read descriptions from the ancient world decrying the, the wicked days in which they live, and that's pretty much a state of humanity today. In other words, that's a description of fallen human beings. 
You say, well, why in the world would Paul tell Timothy about it? Well, perhaps there was a mentality that now the Messiah had come into the world and died and risen from the dead, that everything would just change. Perhaps there was a mentality that with the gospel being so powerful, that things would just change around us and, and get a lot easier. All right. It, Paul also warns Timothy just a few words down, a few verses down, that all who live godly lives in the Messiah Jesus will suffer persecution. In other words, Timothy, this is relevant stuff for you to know. You say, but, but, but it's talking about the end times. Yes, clearly in the New Testament, the end times describes the period from the death and resurrection of Jesus until his return. In other words, we have been in the last days. We have been in the end times for the last 2,000 years. What, is, what does Peter say in Acts 2.17 when he begins quoting from the prophet Joel about the outpouring of the Spirit? And he says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my Spirit. In Joel 2.28, it doesn't say in the last days. It says after this in Hebrew. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation, doesn't read in the last days. But Peter said it to say, hey, these days in which we're living now, these are the last days, the days spoken of by the prophets. And, and we see elsewhere, <coughs> excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of, of living at, at the, the, the consummation of the ages. And 2 Peter 1, or 1 Peter 1, talks about the, the gospel being preached in these last times in which we live. And Hebrews 1 speaks of God speaking to us in these last times. And James, Jacob, the fifth chapter, speaks of these last days in which we live. And 1 John 2 speaks of us living in the last hour. This, this is all in New Testament times. So we have been in this period of the last days, the end times. This is the, the final season of the working of God on planet Earth before Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. Hence, the last days, the end times, the, the culmination period. You know, we talk about the last quarter of a football game. Well, it is a quarter. It's a quarter. It's a substantial period of time, but it's, it is the last segment, segment section of that football game. So I, I just use this as an illustration to say that we could draw a wrong conclusion that everything's going to get worse, therefore there's no reason to try to bring about change based on a misreading of 2 Timothy 3. Not only so, what if every generation read 2 Timothy 3 and said, well, this is a prophecy about the last generation and we're living in the last generation. Therefore what? Therefore there's no reason to try to change anything. No reason to eradicate slavery. No reason to fight other social injustices. No reason to ever seek to bring about social change in any generation ever because everyone reading it and say, that's us, we're the last generation, this is happening to us, it's all coming down. Do you see how dangerous that can be? Y yes, yes, what Paul's saying is very relevant. Don't, don't expect this to be like taking some beautiful cruise into the horizon. It's going to be tough times in these last days. People are going to be wicked. There's going to be all kinds of sin. And yes, in many ways, human beings will go from wickedness to wickedness and get worse. But in many other ways, Scripture speaks of the gospel going in power throughout the entire earth and God saving a multitude that no one could number. And I find that significant because in Revelation 7, it speaks of a multitude from every tribe and, and tongue and, and, language, and, and group and ethnicity around the world, right? It, it speaks of those people gathered around the throne worshiping, a multitude no one could number. And yet elsewhere in the book of Revelation, there's reference to an army of, of 200 million. 
So if 200 million could be numbered, and that's, that's given a number there, how many will the number of the saved be at the end of the age? How many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions? How many billions? I don't know the exact number. Only God knows. But my point is, yes, there's going to be wickedness right up until Jesus returns. Yes, these last days will be marked with all types of moral compromise and spiritual compromise and deception. But that's the way it's always been. What God's saying is don't be discouraged by that. Avoid the wrong kind of people, but also know that the gospel will go forward in power and triumph over the entire world, meaning not that everyone will get saved, but that there will be a harvest from the nations. The fullness of the Gentiles will come. Israel will be saved. You say, I don't, I don't believe it like that. Well, well, we'll look at the scripture. But again, I, I want to talk primarily about how our eschatology, how our end time view affects our attitude today. We'll be right back. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So, so what is eschatology? What's the word for the study of the end times? So theology, right? Theos, God, ology, we're used to theology, the study of God. So the eschaton, the, the end in, in Greek. What is that? Eschatology, the study of the end, the study of the end times. So there, there are several different viewpoints that have been held to at different times in church history. Some are too fringe, too extreme, too modern, even, even to be mentioned. But I want to look at the main ones that have been held to over the years or that have become very dominant over the years. So operative word, millennium, millennium referring to a thousand year period. And there is a reference in Revelation, the 20th chapter to Jesus reigning for a thousand years on the earth. And from the best we can tell, the earliest witnesses that we have, different church leaders who were the disciples of the apostles and the, the leaders in the second and third generation, it seemed that they widely held to a pre-millennial coming of Jesus, that Jesus will return to earth before the millennium, that there'll be a time of great wickedness, difficulty, tribulation at the end in which God's people will stand victorious, but specifically that Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand year period. So it is pre-millennial. He comes before the millennial kingdom. Some people think that's a more modern view. Actually, from what we can tell, that was the view held to by the earliest believers. But then again, even though there are many verses in the Old Testament that speak of, of the Messiah ruling and reigning on the earth and the wolf lying down with the lamb and a time of, of, of unity and harmony and no more war, and Israel at the center as the nations come to Jerusalem to learn about God, as God's people, the church, we've already been glorified with, and these are the nations that remain. So. As, as, as much as there are many verses in the Old Testament speaking about that, and, and that can be reinforced by verses in the New Testament, there's only that one solitary reference to a thousand-year period. And, and by the way, uh, in our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Craig Keener and myself, let me get it in the camera there, uh, 
and and you know because of our 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 screen and our uh our uh, lights uh, some of it does maybe it looks a little psychedelic cover there. any anyway uh <clears throat> in our book not afraid of the antichrist why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture uh we take some time to sketch out these different views and where they come historically professor craig keener and yours truly so uh, the premillennial view seems to be the earliest view. Uh, over a period of time, getting down to third, fourth century, there was more of a view of a spiritual kingdom, and especially with the quote, Christianizing of the Roman Empire, and it looked like the, the triumph of the kingdom of God, that, that now Jesus was ruling spiritually over the world, that his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom, and it was manifest on the earth, but it wouldn't be a specific thousand year reign. Now, some thought there would be a thousand years and, and that would be the end of the world, but obviously that didn't work out like that. So there's not literally a millennium on the earth, a thousand year reign. And that position is known as amillennialism, the amillennial position, the, that ah there, that when you see a at the beginning of a word, it, it often means negating. So an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God or, or agnostic, someone who says we can't be sure about certain things. So someone who is amillennial or amillennial, they do not believe there will be a literal thousand-year kingdom of Jesus on the earth. So at the end of the age, Jesus does return, and many amillennialists do hold to a time of apostasy and defection and falling away before the end of the age. Then a view that, that comes up later is a view called postmillennialism. And that view was held to, for example, by Charles Finney in the 1800s or Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. And they really felt that through revival and conversion and the spreading of the gospel on the earth, that we could literally usher in the millennial kingdom, that the church through the preaching of the gospel would usher in the millennial kingdom, that the, the gospel would, would be like a little seed that, that grew and grew and grew and, until it was massive and encompassed the whole earth. Or, or like the woman who, who put leaven in different loaves and then it rose until it reached fullness. Now, some say, well, leaven always means wickedness in the Bible, so it's speaking the fullness of wickedness. Others say, no, no, it's, it's a parable of the gospel. The gospel spreads. In Matthew 28, where Jesus gives the Great Commission and, and says, that we are to go and make disciples of the nations, that's taken to mean not disciples from the nations, but literally disciple the nations, that the nations themselves will, will, will get saved. And then after the millennial kingdom, after the thousand year reign, so this will be a spiritual reign of Jesus on the earth through the gospel, after this thousand year period, then Jesus returns, and then we just go into eternity. So that's called post-millennial. And, and that view uh, was very, very popular in America and in different parts of the world. As I mentioned, 1700s, 1800s, World War I and World War II crushed a lot of that position. It, 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 it's regained some popularity in our day, but not a fraction of what it used to have. And, and what happened? Well, world evil. Human evil, you, you could no longer hold to this idea that the world was getting better and better and better and better and better because of the, the tragic evil of the 20th century. So the premillennial position that Jesus will return before the millennium and re rule and reign for a thousand years on the earth, the amillennial position that there will be no literal reign on the earth, that Jesus is reigning spiritually as king, and that 
he returns and we step into eternity, the post-millennial position that through the preaching of the gospel, a thousand year reign will take place on the earth. Jesus reigning in heaven as his church leads the way on the earth for a thousand years as the whole earth turns to the Lord. At the end of which post-millennial Jesus returns and we go into eternity. And, and then beginning, especially in the mid 1800s, becoming very popular through the Schofield reference Bible. And then through Hal Lindsey's late great planet earth. And then through Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's best-selling novel series, Left Behind, uh, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view, or the dispensational, pre-millennial view. And in the book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, we explain more about the history of dispensationalism, as this is called, this pre-tribulational view, and break it down in terms of, of what it means. But it basically make, makes it a, a complete distinction between Israel and the church. So God was dealing with Israel. Jesus, the Messiah, came to Israel. He was rejected. We're now in a parenthetical age, the church age. And then when, when God is ready to deal decisively with Israel again, that parenthetical age will end, right? So like bookends on either side, the church will be taken out to meet with Jesus. And then that end time clock gets ticking, the final seven years, and, and in particular, three and a half years of tribulation, great tribulation, hell on earth while the church has been raptured in the presence of the Lord, enjoying his beauty and favor as all hell is breaking loose on earth. At the end of which time Jesus returns and sets up his millennial kingdom on the earth. So it is premillennial, but it is pre-tribulational. And, and with that, a major distinctive of that view is that Jesus can come at any moment and that we should be living in readiness of Jesus coming at any moment. Now, I'm not trying to argue a particular position today. We argue it in our book, but even so, when you've had so many church leaders over the centuries with so many different views, you don't want to hammer this in a super dogmatic way. As much as we hold to things strongly, we want to do it with grace towards those who differ. Right? There are other positions, as I said, even more fringe that, that are just not worth discussing here. Okay, But these, these are the major different viewpoints. So <clears throat> I just want to point something out, a strength from each viewpoint. All right. A strength from each one. The amillennial viewpoint has as a strength that it recognizes the spiritual kingdom of Jesus. Even now it recognizes his rule and reign. Even now it recognizes the extending of his kingdom. Even now in spirit so that King Jesus sits enthroned at the right hand of the father until his enemies are made a footstool. That's a positive emphasis to always remember that the, the post-millennial view has as a strength, a spirit of optimism and victory that says that the gospel will triumph, that the ways of God will conquer on the earth. That in the end, instead of us saying, Oh man, defeated again, no, it'll be the victory of God spreading through the entire earth. That's a positive there. The historic premillennial view has as something very positive that it literally takes the literal words of God. That when God literally says that he will do thus and such for Israel, that he will do thus and such on the earth, that he will keep his promise, that he will literally do these things. Hence, we recognize the modern state of Israel 
as part of the fulfillment of that leading forward to the rest of what it'll do. So that's very encouraging. Look at what he's doing. That's encouraging that the rest will come to pass. Uh, the pre-tribulational premillennial view, the dispensationalist view that divides things into these different dispensations, that also takes these promises very literally. It has as a strength a focus on the return of Jesus. It talks often about the return of Jesus. It thinks often about the return of Jesus and tells us to live in readiness for the return of Jesus. That's a positive as well. So I want to take what I can that's positive from, and that I can see in scripture from each of these different views. And in fact, I live, I seek to live in readiness of the return of Jesus. I believe he will literally keep his promises. I personally have an eschatology of optimism, believing in the triumph of God in the midst of this wicked world. And I do glory in the fact that Jesus rules and reigns even now. But these, each of these different teachings can also have downsides in terms of our attitude. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Not taking your calls today. This is one of these teaching days as we talk about how our eschatology, how our attitude, excuse me, how our end-time views, our views about the future can affect our attitude, our mindset today. It's been on my mind with a new book by Professor Craig Keener and me holding it in my hands now. It's officially due out March 19th, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, written not to be divisive, but to edify and to challenge everyone to look at scripture. Some say, well, why write on that? That's controversial. Well, do you say the same thing when someone in your camp writes a book on the end times that you agree with? If you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and, and someone writes a new book on it or a new novel comes out about it or a movie comes out about it, you say, well, they shouldn't do that because that's divisive. No, because you agree with that. So uh, let, let's all be students of the word. Let's all, <coughs> excuse me, let's all humble ourselves before God and let's say, Father, what does your word say? That's all I want to, Lord, what does your word say? I'm, we're captive to your word. We don't bring our own biases and preferences. What does your word say? How much are you revealing? How much can we know based on your word? Let me give you an example how a scripture can be misapplied in such a way that can have a crippling spiritual effect on it. Matthew chapter 24, the so-called Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaking on the Mount of Olives, which we have in very similar but slightly different form in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Matthew 24, the disciples, as they're leaving the temple, just uh, amazed that they've been there many a time. Just look, look at this amazing place. Look at the size of these stones. And Jesus says, not one stone's going to be left unturned. And, and it, it, when they say to him, oh, okay, verse 3, well, well, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking him as if it's all one and the same thing. The destruction of the temple, the sign of your coming, and the end of the age. So he answers this threefold question all here in Matthew 24. And he says, verse 4, Yeshua answered them, be careful that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and will lead many 
astray. So there's a warning about deception. So if we go down a little further in the chapter, we see that the warning about deception uh, comes up again. Uh, let's look, for example, in verse 10. As a result of persecution, then many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold. All right, so, so notice we've got a warning. Be careful, no one leads you astray. Verse 4. In verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Let's keep scrolling down and, and let's go down to, oh, let's see, around verse 24 as Jesus is giving further warnings. Verse 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the chosen. See, I've told you beforehand. All right, so. Many people read those verses and say, oh, we got to be really careful about spiritual deception today because Jesus warned us that it was coming. And since we're the last generation and he's coming any moment and, and these warnings about spiritual deception are especially for us. So, you know, people talk about like miracles today or healing today or prophecy today. We need to be really, really careful about that stuff. Well, well actually, the Bible always calls us to discernment. The Bible always calls us to test everything by the word and to hold fast to that, which is good. And, and the Bible from Moses' day on was warning about false prophets and false miracles and things like that. So there's, there's nothing new with that warning. Jesus is obviously speaking of things intensifying and increasing. But I, I want to point something out. The men to whom he first spoke these words, the first application was to the apostles, right? The first application is the apostles and the destruction of Jerusalem in their day. And the final application is the last generation, whoever that will be. And, and what I understand to be a destruction of the, 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 the temple, that'll be extant then. So I do believe there'll be a temple built, a third temple. I can't guarantee it, but I do believe that, that that will happen. And that there'll be a final unfolding of this scene at the end of the age before Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth. I am historic. Premillennial. I am not dispensational. I have many dispensational friends. I got saved in a dispensational church, a pre-trib church, but I am not personally, have not been for decades. A lot of people reject my premillennial views and reject my views about Israel today being fulfillment of prophecy. And they say, you're just a dispensationalist. If I was, I'd say so. And I'm not. So, so why mischaracterize me in order to differ with me? Characterize me properly and then differ in substance. All right? That's a better way to do it. I'm not amillennial. I'm not postmillennial. Although I have appreciation for all the different views. I have appreciation for the pre-trib view and the amillennial view and the post-millennial view and what I believe are positive aspects to each of those teachings. But I am not any of those as I don't see them ultimately taught as the overall sense of what scripture speaks about the end times and the return of Jesus. But here's my point. Matthew 24 was first spoken to those disciples, that generation, and then some of the chapter applies in particular to those who live at the end of the age before Jesus returns, the final culmination of the age, the last generation before Jesus returns. Did Jesus tell his apostles, beware, don't be, be real careful about miracles, guys. Be, ooh, be real careful about prophecy. Ooh, watch it, watch it. Be careful about tongues. Ooh, laying hands on the sick. Be careful. No, 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 no. He equipped them for those very things. He told them, don't go anywhere to minister, stay in Jerusalem, 
Luke 24, 49, Acts 1, 8, until you're endued with power from on high, until the power from on high comes on you when you receive the spirit and power, then you go on your mission. Otherwise, you won't be able to fulfill your mission. And that mission included healing the sick and driving out demons. And their experience included speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is, this is not a word of caution about the charismatic movement or about Pentecostalism. No, no, nothing of the sort. Because of true miracles that were taking place, there's a warning about counterfeit miracles. In fact, you can make a good case for the fact that when there are very few miracles happening in the church, there are not as many counterfeit miracles happening in the world. And the more God restores his power and glory to the church, and the more there is a manifestation of miracles in the church, the more you see false miracles, counterfeit miracles, counterfeit prophecy, counterfeit tongues, counterfeit healings, counterfeit experiences. The more you see the counterfeit is, is the exact result of the greater outpouring of the true. And again, the simple illustration, you've never seen a counterfeit $3 bill. You only counterfeit that which is real, and then you try to make it seductive. And, and obviously, we always need to be aware. We always need to be discerning. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you can make an argument that the generation in Jesus' day and the last generation at the end of the age has to be even more careful to reject the satanic. But I would say, along with that, be super careful to receive the positive. I am, I am more eager to receive what God has, to receive the good that God has, to experience the life and power of the Spirit in my life so as to be a, a more effective witness to a lost and dying world. I am far more concerned with that than avoiding deception. In other words, when I'm communing with God, when, I, when I'm pouring my heart out to God, when, I, when I'm reading his word and praying, my, my main prayer is not, oh God, help me not to embrace something satanic. My main prayer is, Lord, make me more and more like your son. Lord, help me to live more and more in conformity to your spirit. Lord, help me to embrace more and more what your word says and, and to live a crucified life alive to you. That, that's, that's my prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you. May, be a man, may I be a man of your word, a man of integrity, a man of the spirit, a man of faith, a man that honors you, someone who's Christ-like in word and deed. That's my primary prayer. My primary prayer is not help me to avoid being deceived. Yes, I ask God to keep me. Yes, I ask God to preserve me. Yes, I ask God to give me wisdom. Yes, I ask him to help me to be more and more grounded in his word and truth to more quickly recognize error. Yes, that's, that's not my primary emphasis, nor should it be yours. Here, if, if, if let's say you're a married man, okay? And you know there's always a danger. You know you can get too friendly with a woman you're not married to, or you can get pulled away by porn or something like that. Is your major prayer every day, oh, God, help me not to have an affair. Oh, God, help me not to get caught up with porn. Fine, pray, pray for protection. Pray for wisdom. Pray for God to, to, to put up walls around you to keep you safe. Pray for the fear of God. Pray, yeah, I'm all for all of that. In my book, Go and Sin No More, I start with 20 reasons not to sin, which are incentives and helps. Yeah, amen to all of that. But isn't your, your main prayer, Lord, help me to be the husband you want me to be? Help me to be the man you want me to be? Help me to be the, the one my wife needs me to be? Help, help me to be uh, effective in the role you've given as, as a husband, as a protector, as a provider? Help me to manifest your, your, your son's life through my life. Isn't that your main focus? Aren't we called primarily to grow in grace and knowledge? So yes, Lord, keep us from the evil one. Preserve us from deception. Amen to that. 
but but some of us by misreading certain passages, warnings about the end times, which we divorce from from any context that had relevance to the disciples then and just make it relevant to us as if we are definitely the last generation. Well, the the, the problem with that method of interpretation is, is it is wrenching it out of context. Let's put it in context and then rightly apply from there. All right now, <clears throat> uh, this may ruffle some feathers. I'm not trying to be controversial. You know, I don't avoid controversy, but I'm not trying to be controversial here. I, I am not trying to manufacture a problem or controversy or difficulty or get you upset with me. I have no desire to do that. But I want to point out some problem with various end time views, how our view of the future, our view of the end times, our eschatology can negatively affect our attitude. I've talked about positive aspects, different viewpoints, different end time views, and how each one can, can bring something positive. But I, I want to turn this around and take the last segment of this broadcast to talk about how a wrong end time view or how a wrong emphasis on an end time view can mislead us or negatively affect our attitude today. And again, whatever your viewpoint, I encourage you get the book Craig Keener and I wrote due out March 19th, not afraid of the antichrist, why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. What's interesting, is that I've not believed in this for over 40 years as a believer. The same with Craig. We, we came to faith in churches that taught this, but as we studied the word for ourselves, ultimately, with respect to our leaders, we, we determined that we didn't see this in Scripture. But, but here's the point. We don't divide over it. And we both have colleagues and friends who are pre-tribulational. And some of my closest ministry colleagues in the world, I've said this many times, you may not believe me, but I'm telling you the truth. I have no idea where they stand on this because we've, we've never discussed it. All right, we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown here, again, not taking your calls, but talking about how our end-time views, our views of the future, can affect us today. How our eschatology affects our attitude. All right. So let's say that you hold to the pre-trib rapture, popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible, popularized by Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, popularized by Jerry Hay and Tim, Jerry, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind novel series and movies that have been made based on these and lots of popular teaching and preaching. Let's say you hold to that view, the pre-trib rapture, which says Jesus can come any moment. Jesus can come any moment. And anyone who says differently like that, then that is guilty of delaying the Lord's coming. Not, not actually physically delaying it, but, but saying, ah, it's not going to happen. It's putting, ah, it's never going to happen which is a wrong thing to do scripturally. You know that. So what can be a downside to this view? Jesus coming any moment. Now, of course, I could question it scripturally. If Jesus said, look for this, look for this, look for this, and then you'll know that the time is near. Well, then that would have meant that unless those other things had fallen into place, Jesus couldn't have come any moment. Does Israel have to be established back in the land before the rapture takes place, according to pre-tribulation theology? Well, many would say yes. Well, then that would mean before that happened, Jesus could not have come 
at any moment. But you may have answers for that. Uh, let's put that aside. I, I don't see that scripture. I believe we should live in readiness of his coming and anticipating his coming and longing for his coming. But I don't believe that he could come any second because I believe there are many things in scripture that still have to happen according to the word. Now, they could suddenly unfold in a year or six months or three months when it looks like it's going to take 100 years. That could happen. But I personally don't believe scripture says Jesus could come at any moment. But here's what I find as a downside to that way of thinking. It, it makes it difficult often to, to have a mentality of being here for many years and, and, and planning ahead. Think of what could happen if you knew you're going to be here for a lifetime, preaching the gospel and serving God, and that you have an assignment to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord and to hasten the coming of the Lord through obedience and with the hope that Jesus will come by the end of your lifetime or in the next generation. Well, let's just say that, right? So you have a 50-year assignment. You get saved, you're 25 years old, and now you get a 50-year assignment from the Lord. Think of if you plan and you ask God, okay, what can I do in 50 years? Or, or if the Lord said, have a multi-generational mentality. Don't think about yourself. Think about your kids, your grandkids, their kids, their grandkids. How would I live? How would I plan? Many people, well, no reason to get an education because Jesus is coming any minute. Well, no reason to really move ahead with a career because Jesus is coming any minute. Well, well, no reason to fight the social injustices of the day because Jesus is coming any minute. Uh, no, no reason to really think ahead with any type of long-term strategy because Jesus is coming any minute. Now you say, well, it's maybe in the back of our head, but not probably, yeah, but it's, it's often still in the back of our heads that the idea of long-term strategy, long-term planning goes out the window. Look, if you stay in, in a hotel room for a night, it's very different than if you find out you're, you're coming in the area for one night, okay? So you get a hotel room for one night. Well, what if you knew you were going to be in the area for a month? Maybe you get one of the hotel rooms where it's like a suite and you pay by the week. And you, you know, you could, it's like you've got a little kitchen, everything you need. What, do you, what if you knew you are going to be there for a year? Well, then you'd rent a place. What if you knew you are going to be there 10 years? Maybe you buy a house, right? So... These things do affect our attitudes more than we recognize. So, some of you are honest. You'll have to realize, yeah, I'm 64 and, and, and I never thought certain things through and planned them out because, because I was thinking Jesus is coming any minute. So look, none of us know the day of our death. None of us know when we're going to meet the Lord. So I live in readiness to see him every day. But otherwise, I have an assignment for life. And as far as I know, that's what I have to work towards, plan on. It's a life assignment. All right. What about the amillennial view, the view that there will be no physical millennial kingdom on the earth, that there is just a spiritual rule and reign of Jesus? Well, the problem with that is it often fails to recognize that God literally keeps his promise. The same God who literally scattered the Jewish people said that he would literally regather them. I find utterly impossible and absolutely unscriptural the view that Jesus said, or, or when, when God said to Israel, I'll scatter you in my anger, but I'll regather you in my mercy, that the scattering is a physical scattering and the, the regathering is spiritual. No, that is not how he keeps his promises and not how he explains them because he explains them with literality. So there are many things God's doing on the earth today in conjunction with the prophetic word, including the physical restoration of Israel to the land and including what will ultimately culminate, culminate in, in a national churning of Jewish people to the Lord. 
and an amillennial view that denies a literal millennial kingdom, that denies that God will literally carry out his promises on the earth, that, that fails to recognize that God literally keeps his word. That is super encouraging. You know, when we bring a tour group over to Israel, some of you were just with me there, some have been on previous tours, but we're over there in Israel and you think, boy, God's kept his promises to Israel. He's going to keep his promises to the church. It, it's, there's much to that, much to that. What about the post-millennial view? Well, the post-millennial view with, with all of its emphasis on, on quote, an eschatology of optimism, a positive view on the end times, the gospel will triumph. The, the problem is that it fails to recognize the depth of human evil and wickedness and the fact that right until Jesus returns, there will be darkness, there will be sin. In, in other words, it, it can be over-optimistic, it can be overconfident. Now, I don't know that there's a human being on the planet more optimistic in Jesus than I am. Talk to anybody close to me, just with a confidence and a faith and, and an expectation of God's kingdom and God's promises and this utter certainty that the glory of God will cover the nations, this other certainty that, that Israel will be saved, this other uh, utter certainty of the triumph of God on the earth. I, I, I just live with this all the time. It fuels me every day. So I'm not, oh, this is all coming down, hopeless, gloom and doom. That's not me. That being said, friends, that being said, there is a false eschatology of optimism that is not prepared for the depth of human evil that is not prepared for the ugliness of what will happen, and that sometimes, sometimes, falls into a gospel of comfort and security that everything is gonna work out great and doesn't adequately prepare for suffering. And by the way, I had heard this story, but then verified it, and Craig and I tell it in Not Afraid of the Antichrist. There were missionaries in China who were pre-trib rapture missionaries, and as communism rose and they had to flee uh, from Mao Zedong, and what was coming down on the people there, they had taught them be, before tribulation, Jesus will rapture you out. Well, the Chinese Christians suffered hell on earth. You said, well, it won't be like the Antichrist. Well, is the Antichrist going to burn people alive worse or torture them to death worse or bury them alive worse or imprison them for life worse? In other words, people have suffered all kinds of terrible tribulation and hardship. And there are places where there were believers that have been wiped out, all of them killed, tortured to death, died in the most horrific ways. They've been through tribulation. When the Iron Curtain or the Bamboo Curtain, I should say, opened back up and missionaries were able to get back in China, many Christian leaders were upset. And they said, you told, you told us we wouldn't go through this. You told us we'd be raptured out first. Corrie ten Boom tells that story. So <clears throat> there can be a certain mindset, which works well in America, when relatively compared to the rest of the world, we have it so easy and there's so little persecution that it can feed into a certain self-confidence. What about historic premillennialism, the view that I hold? What can be a downside to it? Well, often there's really not a lot of focus on the return of Jesus. Our dispensationalist friends have it, or our, our, our pre-trib premillennial friends have it. Now I think there's, there's an unhealthy emphasis on the Jesus coming any moment, Jesus coming any moment, Jesus coming any moment, and the rapture could be here any second. You know, those rapture practice jump up and down and get ready for the rapture and can't even think about tomorrow because Jesus is coming any minute. I'm saying it in an exaggerated way. 
but I found that unhealthy. On the flip side, who talks about the return of Jesus? Who brings consciousness to the return of Jesus? Who emphasizes the importance of the return of Jesus more than the, the pre-trib dispensationalists? So I, I differ with some of the theology there of my friends, but I recognize there is an excitement. There, there is a reality about his return. So what I want to emphasize is, as you go through the New Testament, the return of Jesus is a big subject. I was with my dear friend, Pastor David Harwood, uh, a few days back doing a Sunday night service for his, for his fellowship. And we were interceding and praying and worshiping. And we did one of his songs, going to be a great day when you come, Lord Jesus. And the more we sang it, I was just getting so excited about the return of Jesus. We long for his appearing. And that's another thing with the post-millennial view, we hardly long for his appearing because he's, the gospel is going to triumph first. No, the world is broken. The world is sinful. The world is hurting. Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come. In the Hebrew words, Baruch HaBab Hashem Aranai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we welcome you back. And one major theme you'll find in Not Afraid of the Antichrist is, is that we end on a note of victory. A note of, we, don't, we, don't have to be, we don't have to be afraid of the tribulation. We don't have to be afraid of the devil. If we're not afraid of the devil, why should we be afraid of the devil's main man, the Antichrist? And if Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation, but be a good cheer, I've overcome the world, John 16, 33. And if Paul said in Acts 14, 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Why should we fear tribulation? God is with us. God will keep us. As wrath is poured out on a sinning world, God will keep us. As the sinning world attacks us, he will give us strength to endure as he always has. Regardless of your views, though, friends, let's live lives worthy of the Lord and let us long for his 